there, Dreamfinder here. <clears throat> Sorry, Ron Schneider here, and you're listening to Stories of the Magic. Welcome to Stories of the Magic, an unofficial Disney podcast with your host, Randy Crane. Hear stories from Disney cast members, Imagineers, artists, and more right here on Stories of the Magic. And now, here's your host, Randy Crane. Welcome to episode 97 of Stories of the Magic. I'm Randy, your host. Thank you for joining me. If you're new to Stories of the Magic, we are a positive and story-filled Disney podcast offering positive stories from cast members, Imagineers, artists, actors, and more, including guests, promoting a mutual love of Disney, celebrating and preserving the Disney magic, and inspiring people to live their lives just as Walt Disney did. If that appeals to you or piques your curiosity, you're definitely in the right place, and I am glad you're here. In this episode, we conclude our two-part series on the 2015 D23 Expo. In the first part, I shared with you some of the Disney Legends Awards, a bit of audio courtesy of the Nostalgia and Skywalking Through Neverland podcasts, and some of my favorite parts of the Once Upon a Time panel. I hope you enjoyed those. Now in this episode, we revisit the Disney Legends Award, this time with Carson Van Osten, former illustrator and vice president in creative resources for a couple of divisions of the Walt Disney Company. Susan Lucci. I included this one because when I heard she was going to be named a Disney legend, I thought, you've got to be kidding me. But her speech was so gracious and moving, to me anyway, that I wanted you to hear it too, especially if you have the same thought that I did. Artist, illustrator, and author Ivan Earl. If you've seen Sleeping Beauty, you've seen his magnificent and unique work. And of course, the maker himself, George Lucas. Now, I did not include the audio for Johnny Depp's induction. I have it, but let's just say it wouldn't have translated well to an audio podcast. There's also three segments with Imagineer Joey Caparoso, courtesy of Skywalking Through Neverland. A few excerpts from Disney in Concert, A Silly Symphony Celebration. I didn't include all of any of the songs, or even most of any of the songs, but there are some introductions from film critic and historian Leonard Malton, followed by Walt Disney's introduction of the Silly Symphonies. A bit more from Skywalking Through Neverland, this time with Ashley Eckstein. And finally, some audio from the Walt Disney Animation Pavilion on the show floor, where animator Amy Smead talked about her process and working on both Wreck-It Ralph and Frozen. Unlike last time, I'm not going to interrupt to reintroduce each segment. All of this is on the show notes if you want it for reference. So join me now as we return to the 2015 D23 Expo in Anaheim, California. You should feel free to experiment and exaggerate with your cartoon style and make them funny and entertaining. And compelling when you look at them. Since 1970, Carson Van Austin has helped to bring Disney's most beloved characters to life in a variety of forms of media across the world. Today, Walt Disney Studios was really like a kind of ivory tower. Carson began his career with Disney as a staff comic strip artist and storyman in 1974. Walt Disney characters had this added dimension. They became more like actors. 
Within six years of his time at Disney, Carson became manager of creative services with Disney Consumer Products, where he provided PR supervision and concepts for Disney West Coast licensing. At the same time, he also oversaw motion picture tie-in advertising and the Disney Music Company. By 1988, Carson took on the role of leading creative resources for Disney Consumer Products as its vice president. There, he provided art supervision and guidelines for art production that later became some of the basis for Disney's first licensing style guides. I thought it would be a good idea to put together some information, some basic information about how consumer products are actually made. Carson's passion for Disney animation took him across the globe in 1994, when he became vice president for the European Regional Office of Disney Consumer Products in Paris, and later, vice president of international creative development for the Disney Publishing Group. His editorial supervision and art direction played a huge role in many of Disney's international publishing projects. Carson's love of drawing Mickey Mouse eventually developed into the designs of Mickey's 50th and 60th birthday logos, as well as the Walt Disney Studios logo and design on its famous water tower. They picked up that drawing I did of Mickey at the clapboard and put that on the water tower. And also the Disneyland Hotel's clock tower Mickey logo in Paris. Some of Carson's most recent work includes serving as a consultant for the Epic Mickey and Where's Mickey games. Whenever I draw Mickey Mouse, I don't realize it, but I start smiling. It's kind of like body English, you know, you <laughs> make him look happier and spontaneous. adventures, but he also inspired artists around the world to draw Mickey and his friends to the highest Disney standards. So please me, join me in welcoming Carson Van Austin. Would you like to come to work 
for the comic strip department full time. Well, about an hour later, I called up a friend and I said, think of the greatest thing that could possibly happen to me. <laughs> I told her that I um, accepted a full-time job at the Walt Disney Publications comic strip department. And um, that was probably, that was one of, one of the happiest days of my life. And all I can say is, I feel exactly the same way today. Susan is a valued member of the Disney ABC family, as well as a friend and a colleague who I've known for my entire career with the company. In fact, on my first day at ABC, July 1st, 1974, I was assigned to work on All My Children, where, of course, she played Erica Kane. I felt so lucky. Now, neither of us could imagine back then where our careers would take us and that we'd be here today. So, ladies and gentlemen, all the joy and entertainment that Susan has given all of us over the course of our lives and my career, it is my pleasure to present to you Susan Lucci for the Disney Legends. Thank you, Bob, for those wonderful remarks and for that incredible glimpse of my life. It was a, a history in hairdos. And <laughs> That's amazing. I am so truly honored to be here to receive the Disney Legend Award today. I thank everyone at Disney and everyone at D23 for making this possible. And I have to say, for me, it is really the icing on the cake because I have had the great joy in my life of doing what I love to do. I've had the opportunity, thanks to Disney, to be an actress. That's where my dreams began as a little girl. And to have the chance to play the indomitable, fabulous, fabulously flawed, but glamorous Erica Kane on All My Children. chance to play Jean-Louis de la Tour on the ABC Studio production of Devious Maids. It is such a thrill for me to grow up and have those dreams come true. I want to thank all of you in the audience, all the fans from the bottom of my heart, for inviting me into your homes. Daytime for all my children as Erica Kane, and now as, as Jean-Louis and Devious Maids in prime time, in night time, but it's all prime time as far as I'm concerned because it's so much fun to do what I do. Something very fun happened to me just now when I was going through the red carpet. A journalist asked me if I could design a, a ride, a Disney ride, that would reflect my career and the parts that I played. I thought, well, be a lot of husbands. <laughs> And it would definitely be a roller coaster. <laughs> but I'm very happy and proud to say that my one husband, the love of my life, Helmut Huber, who's been with me on this big ride and continues to be, is here with me today.
boy from Oceanside, New York. He made a girl from Garden City, New York. Very happy today. Thank you.
year in, year out. And it was never work for him, which is evident in the body of work he left behind. Throughout his post-Disney career, he was known as a Disney artist, a distinction he proudly embraced. So on behalf of my father, thank you again for elevating Ivan Earl to legendary status. that's been created in human history, Star Wars stands out. George dreamed up the quintessential saga of friends and enemies, love and war, the light side and the dark. And the stories and the characters that he created are beloved the world over, so much so that may the force be with you is one of the most quoted lines ever in dozens and dozens of languages. His gifts for storytelling are matched by his incredible ability to innovate, and when he was making Star Wars in the 1970s, the technology that he needed to bring lifelike space battles to the screen just didn't exist. So what did George do? He invented it. Weaving technology into his filmmaking to tell stories in an even more profound and more dramatic way. He married story and technology with his own imagination, and just like that, he transported us to a galaxy far, far away, and there was no looking back. He kept on innovating. A few years later, he hired couple of young guys, Ed Catmull and John Lasseter, charging them for developing state-of-the-art computer technology for the film industry. That was the founding team. It was for what we all know today, Pixar. So the same George's contributions to storytelling are immeasurable. Well, that is not an exaggeration. He's been a friend of Disney, as you just saw in the video, for many, many decades. As you know, he helped to create beloved attractions for our theme parks. It was my long-term wish that if George ever decided to focus on other things, he'd consider making Disney the new home for Star Wars. I pitched that concept to George a few years ago, the idea of buying Lucasfilm, and I promised him that we'd respect the legacy and bring the amazing storytelling of Star Wars to a new generation, and I stand here today feeling extremely grateful to George. So it is an incredible privilege to be associated with the universe George created both for me personally and for the Walt Disney Company. And today we present him with our highest honor. Please join me in welcoming George Lucas. Disney uh, for 60 years now. 
I started the second day the parks opened. I was here, and I've been here every year since. And then in Florida, and then in Paris, and then in Tokyo, and um, look forward to Shanghai. Um, and uh, Disney has always given me a great, great deal of inspiration. A lot of what I do came out of the joy, the awe, the experience I had uh, in the movies, on television, and in the parks. And uh, that's what I was trying to pass on with my work, was to inspire and uh, make people have funny thoughts uh, and think that they can do anything. I mean, I can't even begin to tell you uh, how much of an influence Disney has been on me. Um, I will say one secret that nobody knows, uh, but this may get you in trouble. So, and that really scares them when I say things like that. Uh, but um, not very many people realize that uh, Goofy was the inspiration for Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> I love Goofy, and uh, uh, I love Jar and uh, uh, I just try to remember back what it was like when I was young, and uh, what the, what I got from Disney. I'm very happy to be here. I'm with uh, uh, two of my daughters. One of them is older and sitting here trying to get into the movie business, just like me. The other one is two years old, and we're re-going through the park, realizing what, I mean, to watch it through her eyes is an amazing experience. And uh, my oldest daughter still is completely obsessed with the parks, and gets frightened on all of the, you know, it's a small world and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> uh, but um, in the end, uh, I think Disney has given me back much more than I've given Disney. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I worked for years and years and years. We were together and apart and together and doing things all over the place. So it's a funny relationship, a friendship. We've been friends for a long time. Uh, I've actually never actually worked for Disney. I think Strange Magic's the only movie I ever made for you. Uh, so um, I'm very happy. Uh, that after all these years of you know pushing to get more and more Star Wars and Indiana Jones into the parks, the only way I could think of to do it was to get Bob to buy the company. <laughs> so it's a great honor, and thank you very much. So you're in the Walt Disney Parks and Resorts Pavilion at the D23 Expo. And what we're doing is celebrating 60 years of innovation um, in the parks and resorts with two of our biggest projects we have going on right now. One is where we're at, the Shanghai Disney Resort Experience. And then next door, we have our Avatar Experience. So throughout this entire thing, we're sharing models, maquettes, um, the advanced pre-visualization tools that a lot of our guests have never seen before, and the development process of, of Shanghai Disneyland. You know what? Uh, tell us your name, Joey. I'm, I'm Joey Caparasso. Tell us what exactly you did there. Shanghai? Yeah. 
Um, I, I was the assistant producer on Mickey Avenue. So, I, yeah, I got to work on that. It was very exciting. Is that going to be like a meet and greet area? Um, it's going to be what you would, the types of things you would typically imagine on a Main Street. So we have a large department store there, the um, Avenue M Arcade. Um, we have a bakery and an ice cream location. So it's the types of things you would picture for a Main Street, but reimagined for Mickey and his friends. Yeah, I heard, actually I was speaking with someone over here who's telling me that each like shop on Main Street is actually manned by a Disney character. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, and it's definitely to help uh, influence uh, their personality. So, for instance, we have our toy store, which is uh, the, uh, based on the Goofy how-to cartoons. So when you, when you enter that store, it really gives you that feeling of who Goofy is and all the crazy things that he's done in his how-to cartoons. Um, the Avenue M Department Store is uh, is really around Mickey Mouse and kind of that sophisticated look of, uh, of his story. Um, there's uh, Remy has, has visited, and he's opened up a kitchen here, which is our bakery, Remy's Patisserie. And then the Mickey and Pals... Um, Marketplace Cafe is where um, we have our, our, our big restaurant where a lot of our celebrity Disney chefs have come in to serve our guests. Now, which part of Shanghai Disneyland are you excited the most? I'm really excited about the entire thing. I mean, I know that sounds like a, a very general answer, um, but what we've done with this is we've had this design philosophy of authentically Disney, distinctly Chinese that Bob Iger started with us, that we've kind of been the d design uh, guide, guiding principles as we move forward. And the idea is that we want to create a Disneyland that's very much a Magic Kingdom but it really resonates and is relevant to our Chinese guests. So we've had lots of partnerships with, with our partners in China as we've gone through each of the, the pieces of this park. And I think you'll see that as you walk around the pavilion. That a lot of it is very familiar, but it's also very much for our Chinese guests. So I, that's what I'm most excited about with this park. Yeah, I noticed that you have the Voyage to the Crystal Grotto over there, which has a lot. You're, you're on, like, storybook canal-type boats, and, and you see little maquettes like... Uh, I'm, I'm excited about Rapunzel's birthday scene, you know, where she sees her birthday lanterns. And so that really rings true to the storybook canal boats, but here it's called Voyage to the Crystal Grotto. Can you speak to anything that's, like, a little different from the canal boats? Yeah, um, I think one of the most exciting things about that attraction is not only is it showing us vignettes from different princess stories and all the different types of princess characters we have, um, but it also goes, for the first time ever, it's actually going to enter in underneath the castle, the enchanted storybook castle which is the largest castle we've ever built before. And it's home, it's typically, you know, we'll have Sleeping Beauty Castle or Cinderella Castle. This castle can be visited by all Disney princesses. So we need it to be big to accommodate all those wonderful experiences that can happen. So inside there we have a Once Upon a Time Adventure walkthrough that features Snow White's story. Uh, we have a big dining facility for our guests. Um, we have a Bibbidi-Bobbidi Boutique makeover experience. We have an, a chance for our guests to meet all the princesses. And then, of course, as you mentioned, the Crystal Grotto actually enters underneath it, and that's at the base of the castle. And uh, the Crystal Grotto is the wellspring of all the imagination and fantasy land. So it's a really exciting experience for our guests to go through. Oh, my goodness. That sounds amazing. Now, without revealing too much, is Treasure Cove going to be a centerpiece to Shanghai Disneyland? Uh, Treasure Cove is one of our lands inside the park, and it's the first time we've ever taken one of our pirate stories and expanded it into a full land experience. Um, you know, with Walt Disney's Pirates of the Caribbean, arguably one of the most beloved attractions in our parks, inspired a series of films, has also now inspired us to build this entire land. So we have uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, Battle for the Sunken Treasure, where guests can join Captain Jack Sparrow and sail down to Davy Jones to try to steal his treasure. And there's a brand new ride system in this uh, where, where the boat can move in really interesting ways. It features some of our most advanced audio animatronics figures. Um, and it also has these giant projection screens to really immerse our guests into the underwater environment section of the ride. All right, one last question. Out of all the things we're looking at right here at the D23 Expo, what, what is the one thing you would think Walt Disney would gravitate toward if he was here today? 
I, I think that would be the, the innovation of the park. You know, we, we, Walt's vision for a place where families, where parents and children can come and, and be together and have a good time. I mean, that, that vision is as relevant now as it was back in the 50s. Um, and that's, I mean, that, and to bring it back to the to our pavilion, that's really what we're celebrating here. It's the idea that, that we use our storytelling to immerse our, our guests in these environments in a way that parents and children can play together. And we continue to do that, and our tools just keep getting better and better. And I, so I think Walt would be very proud of, of the work that's been done by all our Imagineers. Walt was always interested in technology, pushing boundaries, regardless of the medium in which he was working. For Walt, new technologies weren't just gimmicks, though. They were tools in his arsenal as a storyteller. His constant search for new ways to tell those stories kept him engaged throughout his career and made him a constant innovator. Even as a young filmmaker, Walt insisted that his artists find broader palettes in which to tell their story. Most black and white cartoons had just a handful of shades of gray. You saw an incredible palette of grays in that cartoon just now. He was always working harder to make the cartoons better. No one paid him more money to do that. He didn't make any more revenue by doing that. That was just his goal, his desire, his, his way of thinking. Walt's cartoons showed what a visionary could do with this medium. And he experimented at every, every, every possible stage. So when in the early 30s, a man named Herbert T. Kalmus came to him with an idea, more than an idea, a process that other filmmakers and other studios had said, no, we've tried something like this before, we'll pass. Walt said, no, I'll try it. You can guess what that new process was. You're going to see it in its first flowering, unintended. And here is Walt Disney himself to tell how and why he embraced this particular brand of technology. Well, it was all very crude and primitive, but we had sound and music. However, one vital dimension was still missing, color. It was an impractical dream, something at the end of the rainbow. But in our business, dreams have a way of coming true. Color does brighten things up, doesn't it? When Technicolor made the breakthrough with the first three-color process, I wanted to cheer. Flowers and Trees was the first full-color film to hit the motion picture screen. It made quite a splash. Walt typically had begun production of this cartoon in black and white. But when he got a look at the tests that Dr. Kalman showed him, three-color technicolor, as it was called, he said, I've got to have it. I've simply got to do this. And even his brother Roy, who of course was his, not only his business partner, but his biggest supporter, said, it's going to cost a lot of money to start from scratch. We have to develop these paints. Walt said, we've got to do it. That's what made him Walt Disney. <laughs> um, it's worth noting that Burt Lewis's music score for this cartoon was drawn solely, as you heard, from the classical repertoire. Now, even with his passion for technology, Walt knew that it was really the stories and the characters that drew people in made them care about the cartoons, root for those characters. His, his cartoons were so far advanced from what anyone else was doing. Other people made enjoyable cartoons, but Walt was always at least one giant leap ahead of them. 
earliest comic strip cartoons looked like comic strips in the newspapers just come to life. That was not good enough for Walt. He wanted his characters to be imbued with personality. And to that end, he actually initiated a series of art classes at his studio. He didn't just want his artists to be able to draw better. He wanted them to understand anatomy, movement, motion, emotion, caricature, all of these things. And of course, music was a huge component of the finished product. Sometimes the music was just a background, and an important background. Sometimes music dominated the cartoon. And we're going to see an example now of how Walt brought not only personalities to life, distinctive personalities within the same breed of character, but how they brought a memorable song to life. Take a look. This is the music library in the Disney studio. People often ask us where we get the songs for our pictures, how we decide what songs we want to use, and how we go about working into our stories. Now to answer these questions, I think it would be best to go into the history of some of these songs and the pictures they come from. Now first, let's start by reenacting a scene that took place way back in 1933. Please bear with us because we may not succeed in looking as young as we did when we created our first song hit, Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf? We had just finished a short subject about Noah's Ark, and all the story sketches were being taken down off the boards. Now, we were waiting for an idea of his. Whatever we do, boys, let's don't make another one so darn many animals in it. The guys went crazy trying to draw all those characters in the yard. That's right. We need a change of pace. You know, something simple, just clear work characters. Well, how about the one we've always wanted to do and never got around to? The three little pigs. Well, offhand, I don't get much out of those pigs. Well, you've got something simple. Four characters, three pigs, and a wolf. Yeah, the wolf would make a great handy. We well, used to win the one. Open the door. Bust it in, you know. All tough. And it's a good story. It's timely, and not only that, it's timeless. And we can, they won't be ordinary pigs, we'll, we'll do some good personalities. And to gay duty pigs, we'll, you know, we'll dress up like sailors. Well, they could laugh at the practical brother. Hey, how about getting a tune of this one, too? You know, something to express the thing. You mean simple, like when kids in school would go, yeah, they get tired of that before the picture's over. we got to have something that uh, well, expresses the theme. Frank. Frank. <laughs> oh, hey. Wait a minute. Get the idea first. The theme is pigs. And you got something, a uh, pig ditty of some kind. Let's put it in the time. Yeah, something we can dance to, Frank. I see one pig with a fiddle. Make the other one a flute. We've got to get a little bit right around there. Oh, no, let's keep it simple. <laughs> okay, what's your first line? Well, uh, you know, the brother's always worried about the wolf, so it'd be, uh, who's afraid of the wolf or something? How about who's afraid of the big old wolf? Oh, the big bad wolf. That's better. Now, what comes next? What rhymes with wolf? What's wrong with wolf? Let's repeat it. Thank <laughs> you. 
<laughs> How wonderful to hear this music played live. Just incredible. Uh, and it's a 32-piece orchestra, which I'm told is approximately the same size, almost exactly the size, of the original orchestras that played on these soundtracks. So we're hearing it pretty much as you would have been on a soundstage at the Disney studio. That song, of course, became a sensation, along with the film itself. And Frank Churchill, who wrote it, went on to write music for Snow White, Bambi, Dumbo, many, many other Disney films. Now, the door you just heard of The Wolf Knocking On was built by the legendary Disney sound man, Jimmy McDonald. Several, this is one of several original sound effects that are being recreated today, and the percussion people deserve a special round of applause. <laughs> Jimmy McDonald, as many of you Disney buffs know, was at the studio for decades, kind of a legend there not only invented a lot of sound effects that are still being used, but also inherited the job of voicing Mickey Mouse from Walt. So he had quite a storied career. And he treated his sound effects as if they were instruments in the orchestra. He was musical, and, and that's how he viewed them. They were part of the, the fabric, the musical fabric of these cartoons. Now, at the Hyperion Avenue studio, where Walt and his staff were housed in the 1930s, it must have been an amazing place in the 1930s because well, for several reasons. One was that there was no air conditioning then, and while that sounds like a detriment, it had one possible benefit. You could walk down the hallway, and because all the doors and windows were open, and there were many composers and people working on scores, you could hear all of this music pouring out into the halls. And on one hand, you might hear a piano playing Beethoven, on another, you might hear a piano playing jazz or even boogie-woogie or something like that. And this was, this was the, the sound of creativity, bursting to life. And even when Snow White was under full steam in production and other cartoons, other cartoon features were in pre-production, this was a beehive of activity. The next film we're going to see was considered the ultimate Silly Symphony experiment. And though it has no dialogue, only a wooden edifice as its central character. It still tugs at your heartstrings. How can it do that? That's the magic of what Walt and his team created. It's hard to believe when you watch this film that only eight years have passed since the skeleton dance. Please watch and enjoy The Old Mill. Before going into the production of our first feature-length cartoon, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, we produced an experimental short subject incorporating many of the problems that we expected to encounter in the making of Snow White. This silly symphony was called the Old Mill. We attempted to give it the quality of a feature, taking special care with details such as water reflections, wind, rain, and lightning. Many pencil drawings were made in order to obtain realistic and lifelike animation of the effects we needed. For the first time, we would test the new multiplane camera, designed to give a dimensional quality and a feeling of space within our animated scene. This silly symphony not only proved invaluable as an experiment, but was also quite a success in its own right. For the old mill went on to win the Academy Award for the year 1937.
So what's been your like your favorite fan moment at the D23 Expo so far? As a fan, I got to walk the floor and just see all the great merchandise, the art, the collectibles. So I think just, you know, I'm a huge Alice in Wonderland fan. So to see all the Alice in Wonderland merchandise and art and collectibles, I have to say I I used restraint. I didn't buy anything, which is foolish. I mean, I guess that's what we're here to do. So there's still time left. I might go get that person backpack I've been eyeing. You know, Jim Cummings just stopped by the booth. And if you're a Disney fan, I mean, obviously, you know Jim Cummings. And, yes, I've had the pleasure to work with Jim and and become friendly with Jim in the studio. Like, the fact that I could call Jim Cummings a friend just blows my mind. But he's so kind. He's so nice and so supportive of of me and her universe. Um, So he just stopped by just to say hi. And um, that was a geek out, a personal geek out moment for me, I should say. And then the Force Awakens costumes, like that was amazing. Did you get a picture with BB-8? I got lots of pictures. I didn't get it with him because of the the stanchion. I figured, you know, they'd kick me out if I jumped over the stanchion. Um, Not you. Oh, you never know. Um, but I got lots of pictures of all the costumes because we may or may not be designing a fashion collection around episode seven. Hmm. <gasps> At Disney, we're very collaborative with all of our departments, so it's a team of people that are creating the final product. So this is a quote from Mark Hanna on Frozen. We are not trying to create realistic characters. We are trying to create believable characters that audiences can connect with. So I'm always keeping that in mind. Even though I'm shooting the reference that I showed you guys earlier, I want to make sure that Anna is very character. She's Anna. And, and that's why I want to make sure I'm not copying that performance that I've created in the acting room. So on the film Racket Ralph, the characters were very different and unique. Uh, they were pushed in a very stylized way, more so than some of the other films we had worked on. One of the most challenging sequences was the Nicelander sequence. And as that sequence was coming in, as a team, the animators thought, oh, this is going to be so easy. There's eight big characters, they're going to move. But it was one of the hardest sequences we animated. And we animated it, I think, two or three times, some of these scenes. This is a scene done by one of our animators, Jason Figliosi. And when he animated this, kind of a light bulb went out to the whole department as, this is what they should look like. They couldn't be too overcomplicated as characters because they had to look their, you know, they're the eight-bit world. They had to stay true to that. Um, but they couldn't be too simple either, otherwise it just looked like bad animation. Can't be a racist. Oh. 
So how do I approach a scene? I'm going to talk a little bit about um, when I'm animating a scene for the production, how, how I do that. So this is an example of what a storyboard looks like. Um, we will meet with the directors as we're beginning to animate a scene, and they'll tell us, I was mentioning this a little bit earlier, what they're going for in, uh, in this particular scene, what the characters are thinking, how they're feeling. So this is an example of what a storyboard looks like. This is what a layout class looks like. It gives me the information of the composition and staging of the scene. Oh yeah? What's his last name? Uh, of the Southern Isles. What's his favorite food? Sandwiches. Best friend's name? Probably John. Michael. Three What if you hate the way he eats? What if you hate the way he picks his nose? Oh yeah? What's his last name? So for this you can see there's no of animation, the but it's telling me Anna's on screen right, Christoph's on screen left, there's a camera move, um, those sorts of things is what we get from the layout. So for me, I'm going to show you my acting pass for the shot. So this is a fun scene for me to animate. Even though I'm female, we still have to play the role of male sometimes, so I try to put my mind into what that would be like. So as I'm creating a rough walking pass, so as we're animating a scene, we tend to show the directors about three times. The first stage is called the rough walking cast. And what it is is I'm, I'm creating poses for the scene and I'm thinking about these things. How does the character move physically? Each of our characters move in a very unique way, as I was mentioning earlier. Um, and I want to think about that as I'm posing the characters. If I'm doing a walk with, say, the characters Anna and Elsa, Anna, would, her posture might be a little bit more rel more relaxed, and she's a little bit silly, where Elsa's to be the queen. So for her stance, it would be more upright, or that sort of thing. So we're, I'm thinking about all of those things as I'm walking up my scene. What, what sets the characters apart? Same sort of thing. Um, the staging of this scene. I'm getting the layout pass that I showed you earlier from the layout department, but I'm always thinking about how best to pose the characters within that camera to get the proper emotion for the scene. Um, and then if there's two characters in a scene, I want to make sure your eye is drawn to the most relevant character in the scene. If, if Anna is talking and the other character, uh, say Christoph is over here and he's moving a lot, your eye might be drawn to that other character. So I'm trying to make sure that your eye is always drawn to that most relevant character in the scene. And then keep blocking passes clear. As I'm showing the director, I want to make sure that they know exactly where I'm going at with this scene. If it's unclear to them, they're not going to understand where I'm going at, and they're going to probably take the scene in a very different direction. So always putting enough information to make sure that we're selling the idea of what we're trying to go for. So here's an example of what a rough blocking pass looks like for the shot. So for this, there's something in animation called on ones, and what that means is where we have a frame of, frame of animation um, for every single frame. There's 24 frames per second, which means we'd have 24 frames of animation for every one second of film. Here is my middle pass, which is sometimes called a facial pass or a spline pass. So this, I'm just starting, I'm, I'm taking the director's notes that I got from the first time I showed it. I'm addressing those notes, and I'm starting to put my animation on ones. This, there's not a lot of polish at this point, because I want to make sure the director, I'm giving them those three chances to kind of give whatever notes they have. Um, so this is kind of that second pass, and then here's my final pass of animation. This is with all the polish. And then here's the final, or the final with lighting, what you would have seen in the film. Oh yeah, what's his last name? Uh, 
of the Southern Isles. What's his favorite food? Sandwiches. Best friend's name? Probably John. I call him. Greedy. Princess doesn't matter. You didn't know him yet. What if you hate the way he eats? What if you hate the way he picks his nose? That brings us to the end of this week's show. This concludes our coverage of the 2015 D23 Expo. Though if you'd like to hear me share my thoughts and recap the event the usual way, let me know and I'll do one more episode with that. I do have things I can happily talk about that playing clips of just wouldn't work for, as well as my own take on lines, crowds, why some things were the way they were, and so on. But I won't do it unless you tell me you want to hear it. I'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider in spoken word entertainment. Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. Choose from titles like my book, Faith in the Magic Kingdom. You can pick that one or any of the 180,000 plus audiobooks as your free trial book and it's yours to keep whether you choose to continue your membership or not. To download your free audiobook today, go to storiesofthemagic.com audible. Again, that's storiesofthemagic.com audible for your free audiobook. If you're currently doing something because of your love for Disney, you've written a book, created a website, you're blogging, writing, or performing music, art, whatever it may be, and you want to tell people about it and why it matters to you, then I want to hear from you. I also want to talk to and hear from people who've worked for Disney. And if you're a Disney guest of any Disney experience, including the D23 Expo, and had an encounter or an interaction with a cast member that made some extra Disney magic, or had any special Disney experience you want to share, I'd love to hear from you, too. For any of these, email me at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call the listener feedback line at 734-23-STORY and tell me about your experience. Subscribe to Stories of the Magic in iTunes, the Xbox Music Store, on the website, or you can hear Stories of the Magic while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio. If you like the show, please rate and review Stories of the Magic in iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever else you listen to the show and can rate it. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, visit storiesofthemagic.com and leave a comment on the show notes for this or any episode. While you're there, check out the show notes for useful links from each episode. Like the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash stories of the magic. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash stories of magic and tweet out that you're listening or pin it on Pinterest. Tell your friends about the show. Keep letting others know that you're listening so they can join in the magic too. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Stories of the Magic. There will be other days and other stories, but this tale is finished. You've been listening to Stories of the Magic with Randy Crane. If you have feedback, want to share a story of your own, or even be a guest on the show, write to Randy at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call our listener feedback line, 734-23-STORY. And don't forget to visit the website, storiesofthemagic.com for show notes from this and every episode and to leave your comments. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, live your dreams and make the magic in your world.